Does the world need more feminists, like a fish needs a bicycle? Hello and welcome, I'm Mark Sidwell, and this trigger warning is Counterculture, the cultural discussion show that believes in discriminating against bad ideas and lazy thinking. Today, we're talking about feminism and the future of the feminine. Feminist ideas hold sway in the mainstream media, in the policies of blue-chip companies, and in the minds of a rump of activists. But for the vast majority of women today, they don't identify as feminists. What explains the disconnect? And is there any way to improve the situation? Well, joining me to discuss this today and stop any more mansplaining, we've got a fantastically talented panel of women. We've got uh, the novelist Lionel Shriver, we have the journalist Ella Whelan, who's also the author of What Women Want. We have the conservative commentator Emily Carver. And we have Claire Fox, director of the Institute of Ideas and, until recently, a Brexit Party MEP. Thank you all very much for joining me. Now, I'm going to start by putting an idea on the table. And I want you know, anyone to, to jump in and tell me what's, what's wrong or, or what's right with this. Women today are in denial. They have on paper legal equity, but they are in fact living in a system designed by men and for men that oppresses them in all sorts of ways, that imposes damaging stereotypes, exposes them to the possibility of sexual assault, and holds them back in their careers, and sees them even paid less for the same work. And the only answer to this ramification of patriarchal oppression is more feminism. Is, is everyone agree with that? Any problems there? <laughs> I think, as you say, there's always this tendency for feminists to look at any issue and see it through the prism of sexual discrimination. And that's the case when we look at the narratives around the gender pay gap. Mm -hmm. It's the same when we look at um, uh, parts of the Me Too movement and different areas of the feminist lobby. And I think that the discussion tends to be sort of selected around an, an elite, a sort of metropolitan group of women that have very little to say about the ordinary lives of women and increasingly very little to say about motherhood. We see with the gender pay gap that statistics are skewed in a way as to create these headlines that are deeply misleading. Mm. So for example, we're told that women stop working at this day or that they only start working at this day in the year. And this is very misleading because um, at the moment, the pay, there is no pay gap for women under the age of 40. Really? Um, it's only after that point that the pay gap begins to widen. And there's a lot of reasons for that, but it seems that the, most, the biggest reason is that this is actually a motherhood pay gap. This is the moment that, as we see in women's lives, women take a time out of the workplace, and that, of course, has an impact on their you know, their, their earnings um, and their lifelong earnings. And there's conversations we can have about whether men should be taking um, more time out um, to look after children and what decisions women should be making. But the seeing everything through this prism of discrimination, I think, actually does women a disservice who on the whole are excelling in the workplace and doing very well. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I mean, Ella, that, that point about it being for a particular group of sort of maybe upper middle class women, professional women, that feminism has become, you know, for a, a very particular group of society. Do you think that's, that's fair? Is there something there? Well, um, it's a difficult question because the fact is that in the case of uh, the law, and in the case of social norms, there are still differences between men and women. 
Um, there, in terms of reproductive rights, women do not have the same legal ability to take control of their bodies. Um, in terms of general social norms, part of what you're talking about with the motherhood pay gap is that chiefly it is still women who are expected to be the primary caregivers. And uh, that's not to say that women are kind of blindly walking through uh, the patriarchy and uh, a life filled with misogyny, not realising it. But it's that the problem is with contemporary feminism, and I make that particular distinction of the feminism that's come around in the last sort of 20 years, fourth wave or whatever it's called these days, um, instead of looking at the actual concrete ways in which women are still not free, um, there's a general sense of men are just mean to women and, and women feel like they're not represented. Women are worried about how um, they, their identity is sort of realised in the world. It's all this kind of very fluffy stuff which lends itself to what I've called the kind of middle-class professional feminism, which is that the most important thing you've got to fight for in terms of women's rights is you know our ability to speak up in boardrooms or how many women are on the FTSE 500 or you know whether or not uh, you can walk down the street without being wolf whistled at and it's it's sort of nebulous and it often lends itself to a kind of patronizing tone which says you know the word that you use women are in denial is really important because that's a lot of the time what contemporary feminists argue Mm -hmm. that women just don't get that they are being discriminated against. In fact, actually, most women do know that they are being discriminated against, but they choose to act upon it or deal with it in different ways. Well, my big problem with fourth-wave feminism, and I have trouble keeping track, (laughs) um, is that its marker seems to be self-pity. And uh, I don't feel sorry for myself. Hmm. And furthermore, there was a... general feeling when I was younger that what we were moving toward was a kind of a blurring of the line between the sexes and increasingly we were encouraged to look at each other just as people with with our differences um, and not even saying that there were not some differences between the sexes on average but there was so much and in this this is statistically true there is so much intersection between the qualities that we call male and female that on an individual level, uh, you can almost trade places sometimes. Uh, I, and I felt comfortable with that. I felt comfortable with uh, not being hung up on what we are now calling gender. And I'm, you know, for, for most of my life I've called myself a feminist because I don't know what else, I don't know what other use, word to use, okay? Because what does it mean? I mean, I grew up uh, understanding that uh, uh, men and women were uh, equal uh, and should be equal, treated equal, uh, equally in a legal sense and should be paid the same thing for the same jobs. You know, kind of stopped there. And so since I don't know any other word, that means that, then I continue to use it. But it keeps being transformed so much that it's a dangerous word. And that's, you know, you ask, why do so many people, uh, women, not identify as feminists? That's because it has so much baggage. It's one of those words that means many different things to different people. And uh, for a long time, it seemed to indicate that you have no sense of humor um, and that you're uh, obsessed with with your sex 
and are on the lookout uh, for offense, and uh, you have a chip on your shoulder. And I, I think a, a lot of women don't have a chip on their shoulder, just want to get, get on with it. Or if they do have a chip on their shoulder, it doesn't have to do with being female, but the fact that you know they hate their job, or they're underpaid, or, or they're afraid of the coronavirus, or whatever it is their big problem is, is not necessarily to do with what their sex is. And I, I don't care that I was born a woman. And I wish I'd hear this more often. I do not give a shit. Um, I, it's true that I was born female. I'm not in denial. I'm okay with that. I had to be one or the other. I had to be assigned one or the other. And, uh, and I'm cool with that because both sexes have their problems and their crosses to bear. But it is not very interesting to me. And I also, as a, as a writer, as a thinker, as a commentator, I do not want to have it imposed on me that I have to do this kind of panel into which I was dragged. Um, <laughs> Very generous. But, but it doesn't, I don't want it necessarily to be my subject matter. And Claire, do you, does it still speak to you or is it a dangerous word for you? Well, a, a little bit uh, like Lionel maybe. I, I never know what word to use. I struggle with it. So I associate myself with the women's liberation movement in as much as I believe in freedom and I wanted women to be liberated and they definitely at a period in the recent history, and even um, in the, when I was growing up, it was kind of the aftermath of this, there was a sense in which there were different expectations of women and men, and there was assumed to be certain stereotypes of what women would do, and it was, as we all know, and this was in the, you know, in the 70s, that you would have ridiculous situations whereby people didn't see you necessarily as equal and I thought they should and I really rebelled when I was young against what were considered to be feminine virtues and masculine virtues it drove me mad that you know people would say you know masculine was kind of uh, rational you know cold and you know and, and, and women were caring and soft and all that you know and it was like you know that's not a masculine, they're not masculine, they're strong and independent. That's not masculine, that's human. It's an aspiration mm -hmm. we should all have. Men aren't allowed to just have it themselves, you mm -hmm. know what I mean? And I don't want to be the soft, caring and, one and likewise, I'm never going to fit in. You know, we should all be, you know, striving for emotional honesty yes, yes. and to be able to express our feelings. This is not just a feminine, well, no. it's a, it's a, it is a natural desire of the human state to to be to to feel and to express one's I agree feelings. so it wasn't that the that that's perfectly reasonable but it was posited much more as a kind of set of vulnerabilities that required you to be protected from things and that drove me mad you know mm. it was kind of this sense that you needed a chaperone now what's so ironic which we're going right back to exactly <laughs> this is right. what is so ironic so the women's liberation movement feminism might be all the rage in the sort of uh, uh, polite society and in, you know, in, in, in amongst, uh, you know, everyone that matters in society. But the reality is, is that actually the women's liberation bit has been totally betrayed by those people who call themselves feminists today. Because what we now have is a situation whereby contemporary feminism argues that women need to be protected, that they have a set of values and virtues that they would say are better than the masculine values, so they are demonising as we speak independence, autonomy, 
uh, rational, cool, analytical approaches. They try and say that the feminist values or that the essentially women's values um, can be, be expressed by if we have more female MPs, we'll have consensus because we'll all get on better because we're all more empathetic, which seems to me to be a reinforcing of those stereotypes of the past, but dressed up in a kind mm -hmm. of mm -hmm. right on language. And then they're constantly saying that we are a threat, largely from men. Um, I, but that's why we have to be protected from dangerous ideas, dangerous words, dangerous men, <coughs> escorted everywhere in a Me Too era. So that seems to me to have been a completely, re you know, retrograde step, regressive. And so in that sense, I hate feminism as it's become. I think it is a disaster that we posit our um, trying to gain support for ourselves as victims. Only just one other thing to say, though, is it is not the case that everything is OK for women. And I draw attention to, for example, the not discussed enough grooming gangs, because mm -hmm. I stood as an MEP in the North West, this is where a lot of these uh, grooming uh, gangs occurred. Um, and there's a report brought out by Manchester City Council, which as we speak, exists but has had no publicity. And we know, I'm, I'm not particularly mm. wanting to discuss the fact that people are scared of this report in case they get accused of racism because it's largely uh, Pakistani men and or Muslim men. I'm not even trying to get into that. There was the wholesale systematic sexual abuse of young women in the Northwest, and, and not just the Northwest, but in the Northwest. And that is because they were young women. So one wouldn't want to underestimate the fact that there is also something... Um, uh, to be said about the fact that real sexual violence can be directed at women. It's just that what drives me mad is when it's relativised in a Me Too era where we're not allowed to discuss that because it doesn't fit into a certain narrative, but we're to constantly assume that every time a man pays a woman a compliment or touches them, uh, I mean, I'm frightened in the period of coronavirus, <laughs> I get done with but, you know, somebody kind of goes, are you all right? dear or something in a term of affection this is yeah. enough to get you done over right and if you're a man and i think that that makes women into kind of pathetic victims mm. of aggression but i don't want to suggest there's never any aggression around because there is such a thing as sexual but violence I, I think that's definitely why people are so sick of the current feminist movement because as you say feminists seem to be ignoring the actual horrors that are going on in our country because it doesn't appeal to them or they tend to be sort of left-wing liberal and find it hard to discuss issues that involve culture or issues that involve race and I think it's really doing a disservice to all those young women as you say who've been who've been abused for such a long time that we've just chosen to ignore that and the feminist movement has focused on as you say the touch of a knee um, you know a, an awkward interaction at a bar instead of looking at um, ways that we can really change women's lives and it's really disappointing and as you say as well the freedom element i mean the me too movement has sort of sidelined freedom um they put as you say the protection of with the protection of women above freedom and i think that to have freedom you have to put as a woman you have to be able to put yourself at risk mm. you have to be able to put yourself at risk of being sexually assaulted because that is your freedom and i would prioritize that over 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 the fear of being discriminated against or, God forbid, abused. Sure, and, and, and that, that's very reasonable. But I mean, on, on the Me Too question, I mean, what does that mean practically? Because clearly Harvey Weinstein was a, was a rapist. We now, we now know that in court. These were real cases of abuse. There's something to be said for pushing back. What, what's the, the f liberal way 
to deal with that, that sort of problem when it occurs? To, to rely on women to, to stand up for themselves? Or? No, I mean, first of all, there's some things that are a matter of law. Harvey Weinstein is one of those cases. But because Harvey Weinstein is a rapist doesn't mean that every sexual harassment case is a Harvey Weinstein case. Mm -hmm. It's also the case that in a period of... Um, if you is assess people as being autonomous and self-determining and free, then women can and should be able to negotiate uh, how they relate to men. And I, and I do mean that there are ways and strategies that one deploys, whether it's, you know, making it known to everyone in a workplace that somebody's a you know dirty old man and leering and all the rest of it and humiliating them and or you know giving them a kick or any of these things i mean there's a range of ways that one has deployed over the years let us say and it's not and the I, first women no, now no, and and i don't mean and i don't make i don't mean to make light of what can be a really annoying unpleasant mm. series of things and also those men who assume that because you're a woman you know, that they can take advantage of you if they're your boss. I mean, you know, they really deserve a metaphorical kick, metaphorical kick in the best of terms. But the point is we've lost all sense of distinction, and that would be where I... All I want to say mm. is I want to be able to have these conversations. I want to be able to say which bit of this is sexual harassment, which bit is actually um, uh, flirtatious or awkward behaviour, you know, all of these things. I, I was kind of quoting in a speech I gave the other day where, you know... Uh, uh, one MP was saying, you know, oh no, actually it was a female, a police officer was saying, well, you know, um, we should be able to intervene if a woman uh, says that somebody uh, is following them out of a shop and is and is uh, and is going to uh, give them unwanted advances. That could be seen as a misogynist hate crime. And I said, well, how do you know if it's unwanted? I mean, how are you ever going to chat anyone up at this rate? <laughs> and I'm and I wasn't trying to be glib about it. What I'm saying is, but anyway, even to have that conversation. And this is where we go back to freedom again. Is now to be a betrayer of the sisterhood. Mm. Mm. You know, you cannot have complicated conversations about Me Too. Look at the way that even the great Margaret Atwood, the feminist icon, mm. was called a feminist. A, 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 what was it? The wrong feminist, or yeah, a bit, but yeah and so on. Mm. Absolutely, and she actually said, "My goodness, there's a kind of I'm an apostate. You know, I'm a traitor." Um, you look at the way that uh, women are treated who've tried, you know, Catherine Deneuve, the French feminist, all of these people who sort of said, look, is there a danger that we're actually undermining women's agency mm -hmm. in negotiating sexual relations here? And um, they were accused of having, you know, lobot being lobotomised, you know, internal misogyny, all of these things. So the biggest failure of feminism at the moment is it, it essentialises feminism into a one tick box version of events. You have to follow the script, there's a suite of opinions, if you don't agree with them, you're a bad feminist. That was the word they used for yeah. on that Well, that's why, that's why it's part of this larger identity politics mm -hmm. basket of, let's mix our metaphors, basket of worms. <laughs> um, and I think one of the things that has motivated the Me Too movement which is underobserved is that everybody needs to be a victim now in order to have standing, in order to have moral authority. And uh, Me Too has been primarily driven by white women, white women who are generally fairly prosperous, and no one was feeling sorry for them, <laughs> right? They really, they, they were right just barely above white straight men on the victimhood totem pole, and Me Too has vaulted them to near the top. 
and uh, and it's my big objection to it, and I think Claire and I see eye to eye, is that it's motivating women to to be offended, and because everyone needs their 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 story of of outrage, everyone needs to have have been attacked or abused in some way, and that's as opposed to being motivated to getting over in whatever way you might have been mistreated, and also, as you are advocating, employing your own agency and being able to negotiate the workplace and and the romantic landscape in a, in a competent manner. Uh, and that's where we really need to go back to making a distinction between what is legal and illegal behavior. Because, you know, if we're talking about what Weinstein did, he uh, broke the law, and there is a mechanism for dealing that with that. And if all he did was, you know, put his hand on your knee, then you can get rid of it. It's part of what is going on here, and it interests me that the way that that there's also tremendous interest from, from power bases. You know, you see politics, big companies, they're all getting in on the act. And the other side of the victim coin, of course, is that is that victims need, as, as Claire was saying, someone from outside to support them and be their, their big white knight. So there, there's become this strange alliance between power that's that's looking for a victim to, to look after, which sort of justifies their, their doing more and more, rather than leaving them to be autonomous. And yeah. that sort of created an unhealthy dynamic from, from two directions. Well, for me, this it's... It generally boils down to a question of tactics almost because mm -hmm. I think that the biggest shame and the biggest problem that's come out of the Me Too movement is that I genuinely think you have a generation of young women, perhaps certain sections of society, not all, but certainly a significant number of young women who are genuinely afraid, uh, genuinely uh, have interpreted the unwanted attention at the bar as something that is going to drastically change their mental health, their ability to go out again. Um, and I, I resist the idea of being cynical about the, too cynical about the expressions of the Me Too movement, because if we all sit down and dredge through our past, I'm sure we can all find several, if not many things, um, that men and other people have done to us that if you wanted to fixate on it would make you quite upset. Um, and it, it's really, a, it does boil down to a question of tactics because there are still things that we need to change. There are still behaviours that I would like to see shifted. Um, and part of this is generational, I think, like, you know, as uh, this new, you know, people deride the woke generation, there's a lot to criticise in it, but attitudes towards uh, equality and rejection of sexism, all of that is changing, and that's a good thing. But if you're going to breed um, essentially fear into young women's minds that they have to attend to all areas of their life, whether it's workplace or their interactions with men or going out with a level of trepidation, with there's life is a set of dangers to manage rather than experiences that could go wrong, but also most of the time are going to go quite well and be exciting. Um, you, you, that's the most disempowering thing you can do. And so that's the, it's sort of the, uh, the contradiction in contemporary feminism is that the more they tell women to be afraid and speaking out about hashtag me too, this is meant to be incredibly empowering. But actually you're just essentially creating a, a politics of fear. And as Claire was saying, the upshot of that is that you then have a wholesale implementation of protective measures. So the question of, the, of making misogyny a hate crime, which was 
piloted in Nottingham a number of years ago, and um, I think they had like a handful of cases. Um, it, it wasn't successful in terms of how they would uh, deem it to be, but was also suggested this would be rolled out nationwide, would amount to, quite literally, policemen watching women on the street waiting for something to happen and if you if you you know dress that up in feminist terms that's arguing that women have to be watched by men and as Lionel said when did that used to happen (laughs) in Victorian times and so in terms we want the end point is you want to reach a situation in which women feel free to be as soft or as hard as they like without any intervention from men or otherwise um, and you don't get that by creating a generation of young women who are afraid of their shadow, basically. But I do think that a big mistake that the feminist movement is making is to completely leave men out of the conversation. Mm-hmm. Just demonise them and completely leave them out of the conversation. If you look at businesses, for example, in the private sector, when you have panels on women's issues, when you have panels on whether it's Me Too or just women doing well at work or, or whatever issue it is, there are never any men there on the panel. This is quite rare that even you're a man sitting and here. And the token, yes. <laughs> As a token, and, and I think and it's to de- so to bad. defend yeah. this event, uh, there was supposed to be a male... <laughs> yes, to be yeah. fair, Ray had an accident on the way. This is but the an accident is that, that it's all women. <laughs> men are our friends, men are our brothers, our, our fathers, our whatever, our lovers. Um, they need to be part of this conversation, and I think demonising them in that way is poor. And I think also in the feminist movement and in the Me Too movement, there's definitely a lack of forgiveness and giving people the benefit of the doubt. We've had stories of young men who have got into awkward situations, have been pulled up across social media through the courts for making minor indiscretions. And we've seemed to have lost the ability to sort of just say sorry and to sort of um, move on from scenarios. There was a young man in, in Manchester, I believe, who had awkwardly approached a woman, you probably saw it in the news, awkwardly approached a young woman and touched her on the arm. And it ended up going to the courts. He ended up Mm. getting a criminal commission. And it turned out that he'd been looking um, previously that evening about how to make friends online, not even how to find a girlfriend. And it's just that sort of um, lack of lack of forgiveness and lack of dealing with things in a civil way. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm. Things don't have to be sort of. No, but I I think we've definitely distorted interpersonal relationships Mm. this way. Mm. The only thing that I would be cautious of, and I, I, even I was thinking when you were introducing this program, I mean, it might be that all of the places that I give talks or whatever is a particular type of person, but I, I mean, I think everybody, uh, there's, a, there's very rare to meet people who don't sign up to being feminist, and there's nothing worse than the room full of male feminists. I mean, they <laughs> yeah. want to drive you to distraction. And, uh, you know, Sadiq Khan announced that he wants to bring in a, a, a crime against uh, misogyny as a hate mm-hmm. crime. Um, you know, he started off just before International Women saying, I mean, he says it every time, but you know, I am a feminist. I mean, it's the great boast, and um, you were making the point about corporates and so on and mm-hmm. so forth. And I, you know, I've just spent some time in the European Parliament um, where when they talk about diversity, it has to be in relation to men and women because it's definitely all white. So they've got this kind of, but it's the most diverse commission ever, and it was half women and half men. But, you know, every man there, not, you know, obviously I'm exaggerating, but, you know, everyone's a feminist. It's the thing that you sign up to. So in certain circles, that's the case. Just in terms of, but the, but the awkwardness in relation to interpersonal relations is that we, 
um, every, I, I think that we're not all gaining from this because what's happened is, is that there is a loss of confidence about how to relate to each mm. other. Mm. That, that is the cost that you pay for undermining agency in general. Mm. And what uh, to follow on from what Alice said, it's very important oh, it to understand. Oh, men so paranoid. Yeah, yeah. Ma- men are paranoid. But it's women, not worth it to, y- to, young to women make young. a pass or no. to, to express sexual interest in someone. Which is why I think that, you know, that we can see that, um, uh, you know, people are making connections through apps. I mean, they're still having sex, but it's much more transactional. Far less do you know sex, what I mean? though. Well, Men I, well, are having no, far but, uh, less sex than they used no, to. No, but, mm-hmm. but you're not, but the point I'm making is you're not able to chat people up. So you do a transactional thing, which is, I want this, are you around the corner? That's the <laughs> point I'm making, which is, uh, you know, fine. I'm not making a moral point. I'm old. <laughs> it's okay. I'm not. That's fine. What I'm saying is, is that it's because of the... Uh, the murky world of yeah. the negotiating your way through. But what I was going to say was that young women are scared. That is one consistent feature whenever I talk. They are scared of um, that they are going to be victims. And why mm. I think that the problem of free speech is important and our inability to have these conversations is if you are being socialised into a world at the age of 14 or 15 that tells you that if somebody wolf whistles or chats you up or says something crass sexually that that's going to mean that you're about to be abducted raped and tortured in a dungeon and that you'll never or get even destroy that, your that, life. That, that says maybe you won't be abducted and raped and tortured but if you have been disrespected with the wrong words then it's the same thing it's the same thing and that you'll never right. get over this it. whole idea it that words can be violent exactly <laughs> and they send they then say this will you know that, and, and there's proof that shows that if you are exposed to the wrong kind of ideas that might traumatize you that this will destroy your life mm-hmm. lead to long-term mental health problems and alcoholism and drug addiction. I mean, they, they, this is literally the literature. What the literature. Oh, but one of the things I didn't now, like... if you're 14 no. and then somebody wolf whistles you, you think you're on a hiding to nothing, right? So, understandably, you develop a, a, a misanthropic... You know, you're kind of genuine... And I, and I don't think it's put on, because I do think, well, that's not a good... You know, we used to reassure young people who were frightened... You know, of you know, children they would be frightened of the bogeyman behind them. We would, as adults, say, "Look, honestly, it's okay." That you know, we reassure you. Now we say it's much worse than even your worst mm-hmm. imagination, and give them nightmares. But, but at the same and time, I think that softens yeah. up their capacity to deal with the challenges of inter inter relationships that sometimes can get messy. Yeah, I was thinking at the same time. There's this extraordinary focus on kick-ass heroines and how you have to tell every every girl in every story that she's fantastic and she can be a superhero who can kick men's heads off and, and beat them up if they try and rape and kidnap her. That, I mean, that's a sort of massive thing in the culture now. Is that well, a help? Is that needed to, to get over the, the scaredness or is that just completely sidestepping the issue while actually really women aren't feeling like that at all? I'd actually like to see a bit more of that. There's quite a lot of it around, <laughs> I surely. Mean, there's, you know, Every there, film at the cinema. Yeah, there's, you know, and you get discussion about like what Disney princess should you, or not princess, what Disney character should you be showing your little girls to make her, you know, all this, these new heroines who are kick-ass, as you say. But actually the, the more general sense is, and I, I've had this before where I've, you know, you make kind of jokes saying, um, when I go out, I, you know, wear steel toe caps and no one's going to mess with me. And you get told that by promoting that idea of women being those qualities that were perhaps 
previously uh, attributed to masculinity, um, that that's victim blaming. That if you, and I often hear this, that if you say, well, it's a woman's job in an interaction, messy interaction or negative interaction with a man who's behaving badly, that it's the woman's job to stand up for herself and deal with that. Um, we're talking about non-criminal things here. Uh, then you're, you're victim blaming. You're saying that this, you know, and time and time again, I get women saying to me, why should I have to deal with this? Um, it's not uh, it's not my job to be the kick-ass feminist, and I'm afraid it is because how else does the world change? It's the same as you know. The, there's this. I think more often than not, actually, um, contemporary feminism is arguing that women don't have to be go-getters, don't have to be brave and bold and uh, you know tough in their exterior, but actually that we should be mentioned the feminine and the concept of femininity and softness and we should be prioritizing that so just to take an example you know the whole thing of a uh, the way women interact in the board in in workplaces in boardrooms there are like apps now about teaching women how to um, get their voices heard because the assumption is that women are naturally quiet mouses mm. who need to have this app to teach them how to lean in you know this whole Charles mm-hmm. Amber concept um, which is just a completely alien to me and is alien to anyone I've ever met. I can and tell you, Ella, you don't need an app. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think there is but a place for that sort of thing, though, because I, I do believe that there are some women who do find it hard to raise their voice if they are in maybe um, an industry that is well, dominated you know, they're, by they're men. Boys it's who, not necessarily... Who don't know how to raise yeah, their voice. Course, it's not it doesn't have to be gendered yeah. necessarily. Yeah. Right. No, yeah. I agree with you on that. But I think that in male-dominated industries, I think there can be a... Te- like a te- yeah, but what's hap- Yeah, but isn't that the point that? But that is part of what the women's liberation movement mm. and what feminism had an aspiration to be, which is you would walk in as a woman into a male-dominated situation and you would say, and that was the struggle. I am equal. Don't mm-hmm. treat me as inferior. Now the difficulty is if you then start a shouting at all the men and saying you've got to let this poor woman speak, or b sending her off on a course in assertiveness training, or give her an app. <laughs> the whole thing is not equal because you're then treating them differently. But it was and a woman seeking out that app for herself, right? It wasn't done by the cor- corporation no, themselves. No, but, but, there's, but there is an assumption. assumption. There is an assumption. That all I'm saying is that is the fight. That is the struggle, if you want. I mean, and, and I think that, mm. as, uh, of course, any woman, any of us, and, and, and maybe of a certain age, you can say, you know, we've all been treated. You know, I've walked in on situations... Um, where, you know, four or five men are standing around and I've maybe been on a panel with them where they've just completely ignored me. I mean, they say, I might as well not have been there. And this is like now, not, you know, and they actually treat you, you know, it's like sort of like some... And it, by the way, it's it's not all because you're a woman. I mean, it's also you're not in the club. You're not in the, you know, they don't know who you are. You're mm. an outsider. Mm. But as a woman, and, and, you know, it's infuriating. Mm. But the way that I think that we want to encourage young people to deal with that is then to go on that panel and be absolutely twice as good as them and humiliate them and show <laughs> them up, right? And I can assure you afterwards, they never forget that who you are or anything else. Mm. But you have to learn to do that. Of course, you know, when you're 16, it's hard. When you're 20, it's hard. But that was the very aspiration of, in a way, the feminist movement. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. We are equal. Don't you dare. And it was an equality that you took for yourself. Exactly. You do this not sit point. around waiting to be given. And it. you were encouraged by other women to make that intervention. And I'm mm-hmm. concerned that at the moment, 
It's the men that are seen to be the problem. Mm -hmm. Young women are then over-accommodated to help them out as though they kind what of What about can't the women go. who don't want that? What about the women yeah, who don't right. want to be on the panel, who don't want to be um, a high-flying careerist? Fine, fine. Yeah. I've got no well, problem. No, pro no problem with that. But I think the thing that Claire mentioned was, you know, we talk about the sisterhood today and it gets thrown around and actually more often than not it means a club of feminists who, you know, professional feminists quite often who say this is the right way to be a feminist and if you don't support the sisterhood then you're at the club. But actually at the start of the women's liberation movement it actually meant something very serious in terms of different S words, solidarity, where it was like you had an, the, uh, there was an onus on women to support other women who were coming up against these battles and it was a, a genuine political fight um, against genuine sexism. But I think the problem today is that we, you know, it's like politics, going back to the, the kind of the, the key feminist phrase of the um, 60s, the personal is political, you have this sense now in which personalities, whether you're a quiet person, whether you're a ballsy person, gets mixed up with the politics. And the politics is, should be, for women's liberation, that a woman should be free to be whatever kind of woman she wants to be. And more often than not, Femini contemporary feminism today says there is a correct way not only to be a feminist but a correct way to be a woman and that means that if like, for one example um, that I am fixated on I'm doing uh, in the middle of doing a documentary for BBC Radio 4 on feminism and one of the key examples that we're looking at is the case of the good boobs bad boobs argument which happened a number of years ago funny title but very serious actually when there was the uh, the campaign to ban page three um, in right. newspapers succeeded and uh, there was this absolutely fantastically interesting uh, interview with Harriet Harman who was uh, key in that campaign and she said the reason why we want to get rid of glamour models in the sun and other tabloids is because it's not feminist it's not empowering this is degrading for women and it's not news and we should ban it and they won banning it and in the same interview she talked about how empowering it was to see Kim Kardashian celebrities um, uh, good feminists, uh, is the way she put it, bearing their chest because this was empowering. And essentially the distinction mm. there was that there were certain women who were able to own their bodies and display them and be a good kind of feminist. And then there were women who were just fodder for male readers and male editors. And the big elephant in the room there was that there was a class distinction happening. Mm. And I think that's the problem that particularly irks me about contemporary feminism, is that it's patronising, not just for all women, but actually particularly for the women who can't. I always get that. I go, well, what about the women who can't do that? And they usually mm. mean the mass of women out there who you know, are so slavish in their uh, blindness to the patriarchy that they, they can't achieve like me and my CEO position or you know, me and my uh, high-flying uh, career. When I, <laughs> it's actually not, not the case. Go out in Faces in Essex and you'll meet far more high-achieving tough women than you would in the doors of the BBC. Mm. Well, I mean, you talk about the sisterhood there, and of course it's the opposite of that now, isn't it? I mean, we've talked about it a bit earlier, it's riven by civil war and disagreements about who's the right kind of feminist and the right kind of woman. And I mean, the, the trans issue has been extraordinary in the way that that sort of unpersoned people who are at the, the top of the, the feminist mm. tree, I mean, Jermaine Greer is almost an unperson in certain circles now, which is sort of extraordinary. The most fascinating and surprising thing about the trans debate is that I have never called myself a feminist and I've uh, been critical of contempt not just contemporary feminists but feminist movements of the past and the whole personal political thing and blah 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 but on this 
debate, the trans issue, I have found myself standing shoulder to shoulder to with feminists who I would have disagreed on everything else. Mm. Because the problem is not that uh, that we shouldn't have discussions about trans or that it's not something to consider or that, you know, there are some people who argue that it's just the kind of, uh, that are genuinely transphobic. But the issue at the moment is that women who have fought for women's liberation for years, Julie Bindle, Jane Greer, these kind of high profile mm. feminist figures, are now being told that they're not allowed to talk about women they're not allowed to use the word woman it gets put an x through it mm -hmm. uh, and they can't define for themselves what it means to be a woman and you have to pick a side in that battle and you have to pick the side of that's being silenced and in this case that is feminists feminists are, and, and they're called turfs which is a terrible term and used as a kind of a slanderous accusation but really they are old school feminists who have a particular view who are being told that despite their years of fighting for what they consider to be women's freedom, they're not allowed to talk about themselves as women any longer. Mm. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a difficult issue, that one. It causes huge ructions online. I mean, anyone else have views well, on it? We've seen how it's played out so badly in the political sphere in our politics i mean you've seen the labor party tear themselves mm. <laughs> tear themselves apart over this i mean you've had you've had um dawn butler saying you know bio biology doesn't exist babies aren't born with a sex you've had uh, you know lisa namdi getting in all sorts of difficulties when it comes to um lobby groups like women's place who are just concerned with the issue of self-identification from what i can see and concerned about the safety of women when it comes to refuges or just women's only places and I think that um, this conversation is just so damaging for the feminist movement and it's so damaging for their cause because we see such a, such a, a conflict um, that doesn't need to be there. If we just have sensible discussions around, of course there's transphobia, but that doesn't mean that you should suddenly, uh, suddenly a woman isn't a woman, that biology suddenly doesn't matter. So it's a... Uh, well, like you are transphobic for that. I mean, you're done. Right. I mean, that's <laughs> the thing. I, I mean... I, I think it is extraordinary. Your life is over. Yeah, you know, the, the 50th um, anniversary of the women's liberation movement and only last week was completely destroyed by this civil war within mm -hmm. the feminist movement in relation to trans and the, the deplatforming of a feminist historian mm -hmm. um, and all that subsequently went on. But the fact that it was the 50th anniversary of the women's liberation movement and meant to be a celebration and turned into uh, mm -hmm. the most acrimonious, vicious, you know, and censorious atmosphere is, is is telling of the moment. But I think that it's um, it's a very peculiar situation that feminism has to, now I'm going to say, that those old time feminists also have to take some responsibility intellectually. So because what I think has happened is that if you think that feminism was happy to go along with the worst aspects of identity politics. Mm. I mean, so many feminists will say, you know, as a woman, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. I find that offensive, or as a woman, you know, you know and, and they would take upon themselves that as a woman, they were going to be able to uh, um, have the last word on issues and the whole lived experience question, mm -hmm. all of these different <laughs> trends. And also very much emphasized that identity was the trump card, and that people should be able to assert their identity and define who they were and, and, and some of these aspects. Then this awkwardness emerges, which is, is that then what emerges is the idea of self-identification that a biological male can simply declare, I identify as a woman, I am a woman, how dare you challenge my identity? And everybody kind of goes, ooh, 
now we've got a problem, right? Because mm. identity politics is suddenly kind of, its 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 potential for narcissism has suddenly emerged in the most gross and grotesque way as against. Not just a narcissism, but to the point where we, we embrace subjective reality as and say that's reality. No, that's right. And exactly. and I think that's exactly. dangerous that's right. for the entire yeah. society. No, that's right. And that, but but all I'm saying is that was accepted as part of feminism. In fact, it was championed by many feminists. The subjective, over mm. you know, the subjective experience of all else. That's what I'm saying about identity politics and even the essentializing of uh, women and so on um, and their unique ways of looking at things because they subjectively saw it that way so then what do you do when people subjectively turn up on your patch mm -hmm. and say well i subjectively am a woman mm -hmm. and what are you going to do about it mm -hmm. and you want to go well actually you're a man and and then and then it's like so the whole thing is becoming very acrimonious but it's also a sorry sorry last bit which is just <laughs> that the, the 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 difficulty is you can't have this conversation right. and i think right. the fact that feminism is now associated and liberation movements like the LGBTQ plus movement is now associated with censorship, closing down debate, not allowing any of the discussion or nuance to emerge about whether um, a trans, uh, uh, transitioning sexually is, what do we think about it? It's obviously mm -hmm. a peculiar thing. How has it become? No, you've got to go along with this. Mm -hmm. I'm afraid that feminism sowed some of the seeds for that. But absolutely, as Ella says, now I absolutely stand by Linda Bellos. I mean, most of the feminists I stand by are going, oh my God, who needs an ally like her? We've been fighting with her for ages. <laughs> but I don't care, you know. They are have put themselves on the line to fight for women's equality and women's liberation mm. over the years. And they are now called bigots. And that, at the very least, is utterly ridiculous. And I mean, the important thing to mention about the Women's Liberation Conference um, and the history of that is when it was first set up in the first meeting they had four aims um you know equal equality of opportunities um and there was issues that they wanted free 24-hour childcare. they wanted um abortion on demand which today we understand as the decriminalization of abortion things that actually haven't happened yet and are still their objectives and they spent the entire time rowing about the fact that they'd removed selena todd from it and had spent ages tipexing her out of the programs <laughs> and lo and behold the actual issues that women still want to have answered don't get discussed and it, it, it Claire's very right to say that actually there is there is a legacy there because take for example something like women only uh, short lists or women only you know 50 50 quotas and that kind of argument that feminists have been making for a very long time and the the baseline of it is that because women are inherently different and like as I was saying because they're more predilected to not being able to get the leg up to not being able to fight their corner because they're quieter and softer and more oppressed we have to have this uh, recognition of me as a woman having this position um, on the board in terms of representation and so then logic follows if you have a uh, this different category trans women or whatever it is saying actually we need ourselves represented then it all comes mm -hmm. into conflict and you know the answer for me is always we'll just get rid of any of these kind of get rid of the obsession with representation and let people be people but it's these warring identity politics that mm. uh, has ended up in this mess and the really important thing to say is the vast majority of women who are not commentators who are not journalists who are not politicians who are not campaigners don't give a crap <laughs> i mean they really don't mm -hmm. and and this passes them by. And you know, if you go out and stop a woman in the street in any kind of 
city or area in, in perhaps other than London and say, what is your main uh, political issue? What do you identify as? I bet my life savings, small as they are, that they wouldn't say feminist and they wouldn't actually be that interested by the trans debate other than saying, what's all that going on over there? Mm. So it's about, that's why I wrote a book about saying what women want because most of the time the discussion of what should be happening for women, what feminism needs to do for women, bypasses the political desires of most women. Yeah, well, we, we, that's fantastic. We're nearly out of time, so I just want to go around quickly and, you know, on that. What should feminism do? What what do the vast majority of women need from it that they're not getting now? Just just very quickly. I mean, Ella, if you want to. I don't think. I think that the number one thing that we have to do as women who are interested in women's freedom is to counter and argue against the contemporary feminist narrative of victimhood. I think mm. it's a real uh, barrier to women's freedom. It's a barrier to arguing for very important things that we need, like the decriminalisation of abortion, which inherently needs a belief in women's agency, a trust of women, a sense of women as autonomous individuals. Um, and I would like to see perhaps the issue of women's liberation, women's freedom put on the map um, politically more often. I think there are questions of access to childcare that are very serious and relevant for women. Mm -hmm. But you have to have the baseline as a politics that treats women like adults and treats women like agents of their destiny. And that means you have to have, that's why the subtitle of the book that I wrote, which no one ever wants to read out because it makes people grimace, is <laughs> what do women want? Fun, freedom and an end to feminism. Lionel? Um, I definitely agree uh, to, the, to the point that there is a, uh, a continuing battle. It should be uh, restricted to matters of substance. And um, like childcare, like the fact that women are constantly getting st stuck with social care. Mm -hmm. That's real. Mm -hmm. That has to do with what people have to do with their lives. Nobody other else is stepping up. There are institutional answers. Um, it, it's an issue for government. But otherwise, stop banging on about being women and w what women are like and how women have had a hard time. I'm just sick of it. Emily? I mean, I would push back slightly on what, um, um, on the conversation here. I'd just say that I think that when you have statistics showing that now one in four pregnancies are ending in abortion in England and Wales, I think that the feminist movement needs to speak more about, make the positive case for motherhood, because I think a lot of women see the feminist movement as seeing uh, motherhood as a sort of obstacle, as mm. a burden, something to overcome. Of, something of, a to form sort of, of slavery. Yeah, yeah, and I think that we need to be talking about how motherhood can be one of the greatest privileges and joys of being a woman, and that's something that only women can do, and it's something to celebrate. So I think that the feminist movement needs to stop judging women for their choices and start celebrating their choices. And not every woman wants to be a CEO, not every woman wants to be on the board of a top FTSE 100 company, but a lot of women have very different choices, they make different choices, and we need to celebrate those. That's great, thank you. Yeah. Claire. It is also true that those women who might choose to be uh, mothers, of which there are millions in the majority, um, it would need to be married to a, a member of the FTSE 500 uh, board <laughs> in order to pay for childcare. So, yeah, childcare is a big issue. No, yes. no but I mean, but in, in all seriousness, um, it, it is therefore not resolved. I mean, choices are held back by material problems, mm -hmm. right? And so, you know, I want to remove the barriers for women 
to be able to be equal in society and make whatever choices they want. And there are some practical problems. And I do think that there are issues around the kind of jobs that women do, because it does drive me mad that we talk about the pay gap all the time. But it is also the case that every uh, care home in the country is staffed by women trying to negotiate earning some money to pay for the childcare to get in some extra money and they are paid very poor wages and they are treated as you know unskilled workers and so on and so forth right so there's no there's, I definitely agree a, with you that yeah, we don't value yeah, care exactly no well, I'm, what I'm saying is but they are it's their jobs and what I'm saying is they're not paid enough I'm just making the point that um, I would not think that our job is yet done I don't think that equality exists but huge steps forward have been made in terms of attitudes and I am not trying to overplay the victim card it's just that I think there's things that one can fight for the 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 thing that really was important that we said earlier on by Lionel was I want people to forget that they are women it is not the most significant feature of my life this is just the point I I I, I just I want each and every one of us to be respected for our views I mean or, or disrespected for our views mm. uh, to be treated seriously as individuals this seems to me to be hugely important and I'm not trying to say that I would joylessly not walk around making jokes about how incompetent men are of which that's often the case or you know and there kind of be all the banter between the sexes I mean I'm not saying there's no differences I get that but this is the least interesting thing because the truth of the matter is I just was born a woman and I say that in absolute defiance of Dawn Butler and all the <laughs> nonsense about whether I was described it. You know, I was born a woman. It's not an achievement. I want to be recognised for my achievements. And so that's one important way forward, that we have that as the aspiration. And secondly, that feminism has now got to stop being associated with closing down debate and discussion through playing the victim card. I mean, nobody will ever believe that feminism has got anything to do with liberation if it becomes illiberal, censorious, and basically doesn't allow anybody to be free. I mean, how is that a step forward? So at the moment, I'm of the opinion that feminism is the problem. And I can understand that. And I actually think it has to be confronted and dealt with, even though I'll defend the old-style feminists against the, uh, the trans activists. I actually think feminism itself is probably redundant now. Well, we'll have to leave it there. Thank you to all my guests. Thank you so much for watching. We'll see you next time. This has been Counterculture.